It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. There are few orchestras who can survive and prosper over the years, let alone decades, and also maintain the quality set by the founder. There's definitely one coming to the Smith Center, the Grammy Award-winning Count Basie Orchestra. Directed by my guest, Scotty Barnhart, will be performing in Myron's at the Smith Center this Friday and Saturday, July 29th and 30th, with vocalist Carmen Bradford. For ticket information, go to thesmithcenter.com, and for everything about the Count Basie Orchestra, go to thecountbasieorchestra.com, and for everything about Scotty Barnhart, go to scottybarnhart.com, and you can follow both on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Scotty, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Pleasure. What brought you to the jazz trumpet? (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to start off a little bit about you before we get into Count Basie. Yeah, well, I mean, when I was I'm from, I was born and raised in Atlanta, and my mother was a vocalist and a pianist and all that. So I get my music from her. But when I got to fifth grade, um, at that time in the uh, DeKalb County school system, just outside of Atlanta, they say if you want to be in the band, you know, um, go home and ask your parents to get whatever instrument you want. They'll go pick it up, sign this permission slip, and whatever they get you, whatever you bring back. We'll place you where you need to play. So if you get a violin, we'll place you in the string orchestra. If you get a tuba, we'll put you in the, you know. So for some reason, I wanted a violin. I think I saw another student with one walking through the hall one day with one. So I asked my parents for a violin. I was nine years old. And they said, sure, we'll get you a violin. So the day comes, you know, I get home from school, expecting my mom to come home with the violin. And it was September 1974, and I, it's still in my mind's eye. I still can see it, man. And she came down the driveway in the car. We had a 1973 Plymouth, Green Plymouth. And uh, she got out of the car, and she was smiling. She walked around to the back of the trunk. And so I followed her to the trunk because I wanted to get this new trumpet. I mean, this, this, this violin. So she opens the trunk, and there's a black case there. And I'm, you know, thinking violin. So she opened the case up, and it was a silver trumpet. <laughs> and the sun hit it. It was a beautiful fall day, man. And it, it, just, it was that was it. I've been playing trumpet for almost 50 years. <laughs> Did so she- that's how I got into tr- how, how I started playing the trumpet. So and, did she uh, did she have insight into what you really should be doing? Is no, that right? you know, and I asked her years later. I said because I was doing an interview. I asked her years later. I went, Why did you get a Trump in the stand? And man, her answer was so deadpan and was so fun. And she said, Well, because when I got there to the music store, all the other parents were there too, and it was just too many people in the line for the violin. So I, there was nobody in the line for the brass side. So I went to the brass side and got a trumpet. <laughs> and that's how I started playing trumpet, man. And jazz. Jazz sort of came through the church. I grew up in Ebenezer Baptist Church with Daddy King and Dr. King Jr. and all that. So we had great choirs there. But one of them in particular was called the M.L. King Choir. And they were basically a gospel choir. And they used the Hammond B3 organ, which is, you know, used in jazz. So I, I, I grew up listening to that. So by the time I heard Basie and other musicians, I knew, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So that's kind of how it happened. And you've been doing it a long time. Yeah. Not only are you a great, obviously, jazz trumpeter, but you also have written a book, which we'll talk about, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. also teach. Yes. But I'm going to truncate your career by going from your mother making the decision to get in the short line and get yeah. to the trumpet <laughs> to how you got involved with the Count Basie Orchestra. 
Well, man, you know, again, the Basie Orchestra, I saw them live when I was 12. And the way that happened was I think I had been hearing records through the family in the house and all that kind of stuff, radio or whatever. But my high school band director came to me one day out of the blue. And he just looked straight at me and he said, man, Count Basie is here tonight and you're going to see him. And he walked off. <laughs> okay. Damn. All right. So I remember I went. They were at George Hills High School in Atlanta. And I went, and as soon as I walked into in, the gymnasium, the first person I saw there was our assistant principal, who happened to be a trumpet, uh, great trumpet player, Dr. Edward Bowie. He's passed away now. But he happened to be a great trumpeter, and he happened to be our assistant principal. And as soon as I walked in, he looked at me and said, man, I, I see you got some class. I said, I never <laughs> forgot that. So I walked to the front. I sat down in the front row, man, and the orchestra came out, man. I was about 20 feet from Basie's piano, and it just changed my life, man. I mean, I sat right there watching these guys, and listening to everything and uh and what was interesting somebody about two years ago they were good friends with basie and mrs basie and mr basie used to send them itinerary so they could follow the orchestra whenever they want and they actually sent me a copy of the itinerary the night that I, that had the night on there that i saw the band and it happened to be dr king's birthday which is a trip how that stuff is goes full circle. Oh, I grew up, you know, I was, I was christened by dr king man i was baptized by daddy king so to see them on his birthday so anyway, that's how it happened, you know, and then I just kind of knew, you know, sometimes you just know things, you know, I just kind of knew I would be in the orchestra someday. I didn't know when, didn't know how, I didn't even worry about it. I just knew there's something deep inside me. I just absolutely knew. So when I saw them the second time, about three or four years later, also in Atlanta, this time I got to meet the whole band. I saw them at the Fox Theater. And again, I was by myself. My parents didn't stay and nobody was with me. And when the show was over, uh, it was you know, I was supposed to go across the street from the from the theater at a prearranged time from nine thirty or ten to wait on my parents to pick me up, you know. And the theater is on Peachtree Street, which is major street in Atlanta, downtown Atlanta. So I, you know, I, I leave the theater, I go across the street. I'm just looking for my parents' car. I'm just looking at car lights, trying to see which, what, you know, the car. And then I see the silhouette of the entire orchestra crossing the street, coming to my side of the street. They were at the red light, going through the crosswalk. And I said, damn, it looks like the band. I saw guitars, you know, it's Freddie Greens. I saw the trumpet cases, trombone. And they all made a left turn. They were walking towards me. So the entire Basie Orchestra was walking towards me on the sidewalk. I said, holy crap. I didn't know I was standing in front of the door to their hotel. <laughs> I thought I was standing in the Georgian, Georgian Terrace or whatever it is. Still there today. That's why they were. And, so I, and I just started saying hello. That was a sign, wasn't it, Scotty? <laughs> Man, and, and I said hello. And one of the guys in particular I said hello to. I think I must have said I play trumpet because I remember him playing trumpet solos. His name is Sonny Combs. Sonny was in the band 30 years. So Sonny said, well, how you doing, young fellow? Well, come on inside. Have dinner with me. I said, okay. So, man, I go inside and I'm sitting with Sonny. We're at this dinner, ta this dinner table right by the window. And then I see my parents going up and down the street. They can't find me. So I finally ask, hey, I'm here. I'm sitting here. So, man, I never forgot, man. They pulled over, put the flashers on. They just sat and waited. That's how great my parents were, man. So Sonny... I'm sitting across the table from this guy, somebody who had been around the world 200 times. You could see the wisdom on his face. But we talked trumpet stuff. He said, well, I can tell you can really play. But I told him something. I had been in Allstate and stuff like that. You know. He said, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you come back in the morning and meet Mr. Basie? We leave the hotel about 10. Why don't you come at 930 and bring your trumpet and your music, whatever you want. Just bring some stuff. And we'll sit and we'll meet Mr. Basie. So I got back. My mother took me down there at 9.30 the next morning. But that was also the day I had to audition to play the national anthem for the Atlanta Braves. So I had two things I had that, you know, I was trying what to not day. To, what I couldn't day. miss that. So anyway, <laughs> you get down there, man, and I'm sitting at a table with Sonny Cone, Freddie Green, Eric Dixon, 
and it was somebody. Oh no, the three of them. Yeah, longtime members of the orchestra. Freddie Green is flipping through my little my little scrapbook, looking at. I still can see this in my mind, man. But it was really then that I knew I would be in the orchestra. And Mr. Basie was still up in his room. He didn't. He hadn't come down by the time I left, so I never met him personally. But I met everybody else. And that was the summer of 82, and I knew I would be in the business. Sonny said, yeah, man, call me, stay in touch, you know. And every time I would call him, he would always be, be gone. He would never be at home because he was on the road so much. <laughs> and then uh, about 10 years ago, after Sonny had passed away, Carmen Bradford, our vocalist, who was real close to Sonny, she told me this story that just blew my mind. She said, man, one time around 1990 90 or something, 91 or whatever, the band was in Chicago, and Sonny had everybody to his house for dinner or whatever, you know. So they were at his house. And she walked into his bedroom, you know, just talk, looking around or whatever. And on Sonny's dresser, man, I don't know how this happened. He had an 8 by 10 photo of me on his dresser. <laughs> That's great. I'm like, did I send this kind of photo? I must have. I don't remember doing it. But again, all of that stuff just came. So I just knew, again, it was just a matter of time. And sure enough, Frank Foster called me in January of 93. I thought it was a joke. He said, you know, you've been recommended, highly recommended for the Basie Orchestra, but you know, blah, 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 blah. And I said, really? And so anyway, <laughs> so it's been, uh, it'll be 30 years in January. I've been that's, director for the last eight, yeah. That's amazing. It is a, a sign, clearly, especially the part where you saw the band in silhouette leaving yeah, the hotel. Yeah. Yeah, do you, yeah, do you still have the itinerary frame somewhere in your house? You know, that itinerary, I, I, I should do that. Yes. I, I didn't frame it. Um, I probably should do that. I, I, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought of that. And, uh, but yeah, man, it's all kinds of, I would have weird dreams and stuff, man. So all of the stuff that's happening for me, to me with, as, as it relates to Basie, I saw it happen. I saw it before it even happened, not knowing that's what it was, but when everything started, you know how you have deja vu, it's like, oh man, I dreamt that. Oh man, I'm telling you, man, this universe, who knows, man. Signs everywhere. Oh man, really, man. And the funny thing is Basie looks so much like my father. <laughs> it's, it's not even funny, man. I'm just I'm gonna show you. He's very similar to my dad. That's my that's my dad. Oh, absolutely. You know what absolutely. I mean? Absolutely, yes. A, a Basie album. Yeah, man. So it's like little stuff like that. I can see Basie and my dad, they had the same sideburns for a while. Oh, man. Y'all are just killing me, man. Well, because of your religious background, you were talking about it earlier. This is yeah. going to sound like a trite question, but it really isn't. Do you feel the spirit of Count Basie when the orchestra is playing? Oh, absolutely. I feel it in the house. One day, man, I'll tell you, one day about maybe 20 years ago, I was in my apartment here in town. As a matter of fact, where I'm living now, not the same apartment. I was in a different building. But one day, I was playing some Basie or listening to something, just kind of, you know, cleaning up or doing lunch or whatever. And man, I swear I felt him in the room. I was listening to the music, and it, I just felt... So when we play... I can tell you, man, that's why we sound how we sound, because the spirit is there. We don't sound like any any other orchestra, man, on the planet. And that's that's not an accident. You know, you got you got to have the right people, obviously, but right. there has to be that intangible something that's and it's definitely there, man. And there's 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 been some nights, man, where I, I I'm in tears. I, I'm trying not to let the guy see me. I'm serious, man. No, I believe you. you. I believe you. Just, you could just feel, it's like, man, this cat, this is insane. And that's why we're still here. I mean, Basie died in 84. We're still, I'm getting, I'm leaving on tour in two days. <laughs> you know what it is, too? I think it's fair to say that his spirit guides the quality control yeah. of the orchestra. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah. And for me, I've always known that this is his orchestra. It'll never be mine. It's, it belongs to him. 
and uh, and I treat it as such, you know, and uh, and everything that I do is geared towards uplifting um, what his legacy has been and still is, you know, every everything that I'm working on when it comes to recordings or tunes that we play or set list or any of that. My question is always, uh, well, what would he do? What would he? What can I do to? elevate what he's already done. Well, you, done. You've, you've accomplished so much that you can afford to put your ego aside when you're oh. associated with Count Basie and the orchestra to no make egos, sure man. it's to his, to his yeah, honor. No egos, man. Well, luckily for me, I, I love every facet of it, so I, there's, yeah. no, there's no ego for me, man. Right. I, 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 tell, I tell the guys all the time, look, if something's not right, let me know. I'm not, I don't know everything. You know, I know a lot, of, a lot about this stuff. I study this more than, more than anybody else. I do know that. Right. But... That doesn't mean that I can't take any kind of, you know, constructive criticism or say, you know, you might want to do this this way or whatever. But the, what, the main thing about Basie is that, and he said it in his last interview, the person asked him uh, how would he wanted to be remembered. And he said a nice guy. But he also said uh, he believes in basically treating the music. You have to treat the musicians like human beings first, man. You can't treat them like uh, a bunch of guys in a band or, you know, you just have to treat them as people, how you would want to be treated. And then whatever music you're going to get, you're going to get. As long as they're comfortable. So I, I, I knew that early on. So my thing is, is, are the guys comfortable? Are they happy? And they are. It's and, funny uh, you said that because one of the two quotes I was going to read, the first one is, Count Basie said, a happy band is a great band. Mm-hmm. That's and, right. Exactly. Absolutely. And you just alluded no, to it. And, and, and as I think it's because the philosophy of treating musicians as human beings. and you're gonna, Yes. And you're going to get that expression of talent and spirit when the band or the orchestra is happy. Exactly right. Nobody was born with a with a horn in their mouth or jumpsticks in their hand. Nobody was born. Everybody was born as we're born as human beings, man, trying to get to, you know, learn the ways of life and just be a person. And that never leaves. So the music just happens to be an appendage, almost, you know, or art or whatever it is you're going to do. So you have you can't lose sight of the fact that you have. Uh, that's why I was telling you know my my friend last night. You, you can't lead by fear, and you can't lead anytime you do that when you lead by fear or, or eventually that stuff breaks down. We can see that in history. No oh, matter no who you are, you might, you might get away. You might get away with get away with it for a while, but eventually that's going to break down because yeah. no human being likes to be treated that way. I think and, the other uh, secret to the success of the orchestra is Count Basie also said, and I'll quote him: "If you play a tune and a person don't tap their feet, yeah. don't well, play that tune." <laughs> exactly right. Man. So. <laughs> So that's what we do, man. As soon as you know, I know what's up with the tempo. So every every tune that we play, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And I and I pay attention to the crowd. I pay attention to what's happening. And you know, again, I've been doing it so long now. I kind of I kind of know. You know, I can read a room really quickly and tell if I need to change a tune. Something that's coming next that we get ready to practice. Ah, we need to change that. I can you know and. And it's, it's not a problem. The guys are very quick, and they'll put, pull up what we need to pull up and play. But it's all about the people. It's all about making people feel good, you know, snap their fingers, pat their feet. That's what it's about. Dance. You know, this next record we're getting ready to do, we're going to record in about two or three weeks or so. And, man, this is going to make everybody get up and dance, period. I mean, basic records already do. But this one, we do you this one. When you perform, do you notice that, because it's been obviously a long time since Count Basie died, and it's been a long time since you joined the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Have you mm-hmm. noticed that there are several generations coming to see the shows? Oh, yeah. Five to 105, man. Absolutely. You know, the, the funny thing is, is that when we play like high schools or uh, universities, you know, the, uh, the crowd goes crazy, man, because they're young, they're, young, they're young kids, you know. And now what I do, I started doing this a few years ago. Anytime we do a master class, 
like we just did one a few few months ago here in town at Florida A&M University where I went to undergrad. And so usually the students are sitting in the audience and the band's on the stage. I don't do that anymore. We'll never do that again. I make the students come on the stage so when whatever instrument they play, go stand by them. If you play trumpet, go back there and sit next to the trumpet players. You play the bass, go stand next to the bass player. You play piano, pull up a chair next to the bench and watch Glenn play. This is how I think all bands need to be doing this stuff. Because can you imagine, man? I just can't imagine if I'd gone to see a Count Basie clinic when I was 15 and I could have sat back like two feet from the trumpet players and watched that. It changes people's lives, man. It changes their lives and we, because we want... We need to make sure that they can feel what it's like. You can sit in the audience, you can hear us and all that, and you can see. But if you're standing right, if you're sitting right next to the sax, you know, tenor sax player, and you, you're right there, you're not, you, you'll never change your life. And I get messages about it all the time. Thank you for letting us come up and stand next to the drummer. Thank you for whatever it may be. It's all about making sure this next generation uh, has what they need. And I think for far too long, musicians... And artists, even, you know, no matter the discipline, kind of have this, you know, all stand back thing. I've heard of certain certain entertainers, man, you can't look them in the eye. Right. You can't call them by their first name or whatever. Man, look, <laughs> I don't, I don't deal, we don't deal with any of that. Basie was the nicest guy. He would stop in the middle of his meal and take a photo with you. And I, tell, I told somebody a few weeks ago, too, man, I remember when we worked with Frank Sinatra. He was one of the biggest stars to ever walk this planet, ever. And I wanted to make sure that I at least said hello to him after the last night, you know, shake his hand or something. So I called up to him and he stopped. He turned around and he stuck his hand out and shook my hand and said, Night, pleasure working with you. Now, the fact that he could do that, who is anybody else to be mean to a young kid, to not give an autograph? To, that stuff is crazy. That's a personality defect when people do that. I don't, fame, fame is not about all of that. It's about the people. You know yeah, it's, I mean? a, it's a form of narcissism, and you just of course it yeah, is, you can't, man. You can't deal with that. Yeah, of course you do. I just don't. You know, Sarah yeah. Vaughn. You can go hang out with Sarah Vaughn. I remember when I first met Oscar Peterson. He said, "Come on, he waved me in this restroom. Come on in, young fella. <laughs> who, who does that? Yeah, that great can... musicians and great people do that. Yeah, so anyway. exactly. And the, and it, it, clearly, you're continuing the legacy that you encountered as a kid when the band members invited you in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right, man. Absolutely, man. We have. I mean, it's about, it's just about the human connection, man. I mean, I think um, once, if that's ever lost, we are in real trouble. How did they decide to continue the legacy of the Count Basie Orchestra? And clearly it's continued and very successfully, mm -hmm. but someone had to make that decision. How did that come about? Do you know? Well, it was just understood that Basie, the, the guys wanted to keep going. And Basie said, well, if they want to keep going, let them keep going. That's what I heard that he personally said. Yeah, okay, you could keep on going. So they buried him in Harlem one day. The next day, they're black on the plane, man. And been on and been on the road since. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know what? And I point this out too, man. It's to me, it's no different than the New York Philharmonic. The New York Philharmonic has been around since 1852. It's no different, man. All they do is get the best music and the best musicians and the right person for the conductor for the job. But we I, are no different. I alluded to it in the beginning in my introduction that there are very few, and I can't think of more than the Cal Basie Orchestra. There were a couple around. When I first came to Las Vegas, that were still like Guy Lombardo was mm -hmm. still around, but not him, but the mm -hmm. orchestra. But to sustain and to prosper mm -hmm. and to grow and to share the way that the Count Basie Orchestra does, I don't know if there's any other entities that do that. And no. and, and I, no, I'm I curious, like you mentioned the New York Philharmonic. Why aren't there more name orchestras continuing past the death of the founder? I think it, I think it has to do with the leader. And sometimes it does have to do with the business aspect of it, too. But the leader, man... 
Basie, everybody wanted to play with Basie. And the thing about the Basie Orchestra is that uh, Basie allowed the arrangers to really, different arrangers, to really shape the sound of the orchestra. It wasn't one guy. Like in Duke's situation, that's Duke and Billy Strayhorn. Period. End of story. And it's not wrong with that, but that's just what it is. Basie, Neil Hefty, Quincy Jones, Frank Foster, Frank West, Ernie Wilkins, Thad Jones, all these musicians could contribute, and therefore the orchestra itself was the star. Not the leader, although Basie was a huge star, right. the orchestra itself was the star. That's the key. And that's and same with the New York Philharmonic. The New York Philharmonic is the star. It's not who's standing on the podium. It doesn't matter who's on the podium. It, I mean, it does, you know what I'm saying. Sure. But it's, it'll never eclipse the fact that it's the New York Philharmonic. Just like I'll never eclipse, none of us in the band will ever eclipse the fact that that's Count Basie's orchestra. That's what he started, 1935. Amazing. That's, to me, that's what the difference is. So you take like a Buddy Rich, for example. Yep. Two, two totally different. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But so the, for me, the, the interesting, But the interesting thing is, Scotty, that you go against the complete business model because they had the, the whole excuse for the end of the big band era was the expense of having a band or an orchestra tour. It just didn't make economic sense, and yet you're flying in the face of it. Mm -hmm. Well, it does. It does make economic sense if you do. If you know what you're doing, <laughs> Seriously, it's not difficult. It's not like Marcus. if you know what you're doing. No matter even even if it was say the NBA, like years ago, the NBA used to travel commercial. 30 years ago, they weren't flying on private jets, right. but they got the business stuff together. They started figuring out, okay, we need to make sure. And it's the same thing in business, man. If you get the, if you have the great product, have a great product, you have great promoters and people like that at the great venues who know the right amount of money to charge so you can meet your payroll and all these things and expenses for travel, you can make it work. You can definitely make it work. So I think people have to understand that Mr. Basie was a good businessman too. He had a great manager, you know, but, and they worked all the time. So when you work, all the time, you're able to take care of your expenses plus some, you know. But the key is working. You got to keep. You got to just keep working to make a tour pay for itself. So, but it's definitely doable. I mean, D. Askew is 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 unbelievable, man. The stuff that she has to do to keep us on the road to get the right money. Sometimes she has to say no to people. You know, no, that's not that. We can't do it for that. I mean. You, you talk. It's like the New York Philharmonic. If they go on tour, that's a very specific amount of money that is needed. You got to cover the travel. You got to cover the salaries. That's a that's a yeah. that's a that's a number there. Yeah. Same way with Basie. Same way with Lincoln Center. There's a number associated with that. The key is, can you do the business right and can you market it and and plot the tour correctly so that you can meet that business that basic break even point and then hopefully make a profit on top of that. Yeah. So it's definitely possible. It's definitely possible. It's I mean, fascinating. We're, we're proof of it. Yeah. Absolutely. When you make a decision to select a new musician for the orchestra. I'm sure there's a line a mile long of people mm -hmm. wanting to get into the orchestra. And mm -hmm. you have people that have been with the orchestra, including yourself, for many years. Mm -hmm. So that has to be a very delicate, deliberate decision as to who you admit into the orchestra, I would think. Yeah, it, yeah. We, and we don't have auditions either. It's, it's, it's made easier because by the time we get ready to choose somebody, as a matter of fact, I got, I got to have to choose somebody coming up soon. Uh, we already have an idea of who we're going to have because the people that usually get hired for the orchestra permanently have already been with us on a sub basis. They've already subbed, you know, taken somebody's chair for a week who could make a tour or something like that. So we already know. We have a line of people, you know, that have already been in the orchestra. We, we never get anybody completely new that's never been with us. 
we never do that because the first concert could be Carnegie Hall or it could be a recording session or it could be a TV show. It could be whatever. And we need somebody who knows exactly what's happening on day one. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have time to worry about that. So the way that it happens is if if you get called to sub with us, then you are, that puts you on the list to become a permanent member because when somebody leaves, we'll, we'll, we'll automatically know, okay, this, this fellow or this young lady, whomever, they sub, okay, let's call them. And it's, that's it's, it's, it's like an informal call. farm club. Yeah, we kind of yeah. toss names around, and and I'll make the decision. I make sure the guys are comfortable with whomever we're going to bring on board. But again, they the, by the time we get, it gets to me to think about it, we already have an idea of who it's going to be. So we just have to refresh our memories. Oh, remember they came in, and and so that's kind of how it works. And uh, and then even then, we still have a little bit of a trial period for like a day or two. You know, we'll we'll know on the first night. We can kind of tell. You know, for example, there are people that can. That are great soloists, you know, great technicians and all that, but their reading isn't really where it needs to be. So that's like, ah, we can't, yeah. uh, no, can't, can't do that. <laughs> and because it has to be firing on all cylinders. You have to be a nice person, people that you can get along with. You have to be able to travel well. You have to be able to be on time. You have to be able to, you know, just do what's necessary to, to, to uh, continue this music. And you just have to have a special affinity for Basie. You just have to have the have to have that. There's a thing. I don't know what's the word. There's a affinity. I guess there's a there's a, a synergy with the yeah group. something yeah. something a, affinity. A I think is a good one. Affinity. I think works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and we can tell when people have it and when they don't. You know, and I've had to let people go that didn't have it. I, I you know again. I don't, and I don't look at myself as firing people. I look at myself when it comes to somebody that has to leave is that they weren't the right person for the job. And they didn't do what they needed to do. And we, we don't just, I just don't up and fire them. I'll, I'll point the issue out. This is what the issue is. This is what we need. And if they can't bring that, okay, no problem. We're cool, but I got to get somebody else. No problem. Before I let no, you go and before my last question, I do have to ask you, the orchestra's fan favorite song and then your favorite song. Fan favorite? In other words, based on all the performances that the Count Basie Orchestra has performed, is there one that gets the best audience reaction? And then what's your favorite Count Basie number? It's probably Blues and Horses Flat. Because that song, if I had to name, if all, all of us, um, when we think about if I had to name one Count Basie orchestra song that really shows who we are and the sound, it's probably um, Blues and Horses Flat. But the difference is now, we do it differently from how they recorded it originally in 59. But what we do, what I started to do is, I use this tune to demonstrate the fact that we can play so soft that you can't even hear us playing. It's a great. I graduate, when it gets to the piano solo, I keep doing this after every chorus. They'll play soft. The next chorus, I do this. Next chorus, they just keep doing. I just keep pretty, <laughs> my hand is on the. My hand is literally on the floor, <laughs> and there, and the audience such a kick out of that because right after that, when we come back in, when the full ensemble comes in, we're at quadruple forte, man. <laughs> that is loud and they just yeah. it's under reception is unbelievable all over the world whether it's Russia whether it's here in the States when we play that tune and do that make that dynamic change like oh man oh and it, it, it gives us chills playing <laughs> that's great for the audience when they hear it man they go nuts man so it probably it probably would be that Blues and Horses Flat and before I let you go your book is called The World of Jazz Trumpet yeah. Yes, yes, it's yes, considered yes. a classic, and people can order it through your website or go on Amazon to... is the best way. Right. And actually, you know, it's out of print, although there are a few left on Amazon. But I'm finishing my updated version. I started working on the updated version about four or five years ago because 
when it came out in 2005, I wasn't done researching it. I was still researching, man. But the publisher said, well, let's put let's put it out. No, no, okay. So what we did, we put it out, and I had done 21 interviews. I had made, you know, with jazz trumpet pioneers, but we only put 15 in the book. You know, Winton, Freddie Hubbard, Clark Terry, Sweets Edison, Maynard Ferguson, all these great musicians. But I had another six that I didn't, that didn't make it. Bobby Shue, Joe Wilder, and some other people. But I knew, I said, man, I need to have more interviews for the updated version. And I, 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 made a, I made a target of 35. I said, now, if I can get 35 interviews with people that are still alive before they pass, if I can get 35, that'd be great. Well, I have 52 now. Excellent. And I'm done. Doc Severson, <laughs> John Faddis, Terrence Blanchard, Wallace Roney's last interview before he died, Nicholas Payton, Eddie Henderson, Ingrid Jensen, Claudia Roditi, Chris Bodie. So I finally finished all these interviews, and they're actually being transcribed right now by one of my students. And I'm hoping to have it finished in the next two or three months or so. And uh, but when it comes out, it'll make the it'll it'll be the the same title, but it'll be the revised edition, and it will have uh, probably uh, I did 52 interviews, probably might at, might right at 50 uh, or 51. I'll say 50, but it'll actually be 52. 50 is a better marketing tool, as they say. Well, when anyway, that's, when that's, it, that's up with that. When it comes out, I'd like to have you come back, and we can talk yes, about the, the yes, new edition. Yes, absolutely, man. And I'm gonna do a um, uh, my second solo recording would be sort of a companion to it, I think. And uh, and I'm working on that. I have four or five guys that I interviewed to do duets with me, and and uh, half of it would be duets. So, yeah, I'm working on stuff like that. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Scotty Barnhart. He's director of the Grammy Award-winning Count Basie Orchestra, performing in Myron's at the Smith Center this Friday and Saturday, July 29th and 30th, with vocalist Carmen Bradford. For ticket information, go to thesmithcenter.com. And for everything about the Count Basie Orchestra, Go to thecountbasieorchestra.com and for everything about Scotty, go to scottybarnhart.com and follow both on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And Scotty, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah,